Hello, and welcome to Building Better, a podcast about the cities and human spaces we build worldwide that asks, how can we build better? My name is Christoph Lindner, and as well as being your host for this podcast, I'm the Dean here at UCL's Bartlett Faculty of the Built Environment. In each episode, I will be sitting down with experts from the Bartlett and the built environment sector to explore new ideas and solutions for some of the big issues that affect our daily lives, our societies, and our planet. To our returning listeners, thank you for joining us for Season 3. To our new listeners, welcome. And if you enjoy this episode, you may want to listen to Seasons 1 and 2, which you can find wherever you're listening to this podcast. This past month, we have been celebrating Black History Month here at the Bartlett. And we've been doing that through talks, workshops, and our series, Black Perspectives in the Built Environment, which explores architects, researchers, and activists who have shaped both the world around us and the Bartlett itself. This episode is a continuation of our Black History Month programming. And I'm very aware in this conversation that I am a white man and as Dean of the Bartlett that I represent this school. I want to be part of this conversation because it is important that everyone plays their part in decolonizing spaces and we all have a responsibility to practice anti-racism. I see my role in this podcast as listening. As with many of our other episodes, our guests today are people who are able to bring their work, their experience, and their research into this conversation, and I'm looking forward to being guided by them as we discuss the ways in which racism and colonialism have influenced design and what is being done to build more inclusive spaces. Today, I'm joined by Omolei Ojuri, an honorary lecturer at the Bartlett School of Sustainable Construction, a senior lecturer at Liverpool John Moores University, and a World Bank scholar. Omolei worked as a quantity surveyor for five years before being awarded the Joint Japan World Bank Graduate Scholarship for her master's. She was also the recipient of the Schlumberger Foundation Faculty for the Future Fellowship, which funded her doctoral research on construction project management. Alongside her research and teaching, Omalei is an author, and she is the founder and coordinator of Full Excellence Foundation for Women. I'm also joined by Kutsai Machai, an architectural activist and founder of the Black Collective at the University of Liverpool and the Wedzira Network. She hosts workshops and talks that share Black history and challenge the existing erasure of Black contributions to the built environment. The Black Collective is a student-led EDI group fighting for racial equality in architectural education. And their work includes collective action campaigns, that call to the names of colonizers from spaces on campus, 
and the Wadzira Network is a non-profit organization sharing resources that empower people to take action against systemic miscarriages of justice. And before we get started, just a quick content warning. In this episode, we will discuss racism and colonialism within the built environment and the systemic violence that these have caused towards black communities around the world. So as a starting place, I want to ask both of you, what for you is the legacy of racism and colonialism in the built environment? Omalei. You know, as a researcher, I'm usually intrigued whenever I travel and I've been to many regions, many places in global south. So whenever I take a trip, travel or study, I'm usually fascinated by the architecture, even built environment, the type of building, the type of architecture is an evidence of um, the legacies of um, colonialism, of apartheid. For example, even the distribution of public green space, introduction of trees in built environment and um, allocation of gardens, are evidence of the inequalities of different racial groups. For example, I went to Cape Town. Cape Town, very beautiful place. Then I just observed the British style actually influenced the architecture, the design, the allocation of notable parks, the botanical gardens, and very, I mean, big trees imported even from other parts of the world, not only even South Africa. So these... To me, okay, Cape Town is a um, low-density, affluent area in South Africa. While in Johannesburg, for example, of course, the architecture is quite different and also the evidence of the general lack of trees. The legacies left behind is the evidence of um, the colonial administration, um, which was fueled by the arrangement, the urban planning, even, even not only the urban planning and um, the architecture, even the name, where um, the, the, the neighborhoods, the residential neighborhoods, where we have the black people, where they stay, is usually called townships, while the name of the affluent, the low density area, are called another name. These are the things that are still in grand to, to the current day the inequalities in the distribution of public space, green infrastructure, even the choice of plants, the allocation of notable um, gardens. So in a way, I'm almost wondering if we're asking the wrong question, you know, what is the legacy of racism and colonialism in the built environment? Maybe it's better to ask, are there, is there anywhere that is not shaped in some way by that legacy? What, what are your thoughts, Kutsai? For me, I think that the legacies lie in who is allowed to continue to add to the built environment and by what that what I mean by that is in the for my dissertation I looked a lot at um inequality racial inequalities in architectural education and the Reba statistic education statistics for 2019 actually showed that the group that is struggling the most to make the journey from part one 
to architect is black students. And I think that the creation of the kind of elite nature and the elitism around the architectural profession is evidence of the lasting legacies of colonialism and racism in the built environment because the barriers that are created are then stunting who is able to shape the spaces that we experience and a lot of the time when you hear things like when you read articles about you know like the first black architect in the UK I I always think that that in itself is a way that colonialism and racism are still kind of managing to steer the conversation because architects existed in black and brown countries before the term was you know taken over and given to us and you were given these structures to get to the position of architect i always use the example of my granddad um every weekend when i was a child i was born in zimbabwe we would go and visit his village and he built all the structures he built those by himself so by definition he was an architect before the terms were given to us um, and we were told that there's this very difficult way of getting to them So even that in itself becomes an erasure of who is recognized and who is allowed to make worthwhile contributions to the built environment and the spaces that we experience. And I also think it's a a similar point to Omo's where she was talking about the distribution of amenities and green spaces, uh, because I actually currently live um, in Tower Hamlets and I'm kind of on the border of the really nice part that's Canary Wharf um, and the not so nice part. And I always notice that when I go to the really nice part that's Canary Wharf, the faces a lot of the time are white and I feel uncomfortable in those spaces because I feel like I don't belong there. But if I go, you know, the other way where it's dilapidated and run down and, you know, not as well looked after, all of a sudden the number of black and brown people that I see increases and immediately I feel more comfortable in those spaces and I'm not questioning my position in those spaces. So there's still this kind of feeling of not belonging that's been created by spatial hierarchies and the distribution of things like amenities and green spaces. Absolutely. In what other ways is, in in your experience, racism perpetuated through the way that we build, design, or act in spaces? As a student, I studied at uh, the Liverpool School of Architecture for all five of my years, both my bachelor's and my master's. And all of the contributions to architecture from black architects that I know about now as a master's graduate, I taught myself. So in my five years, there was never once a point where a precedent by a black architect was given or we studied spaces created by black architects, even the study of architecture in, you know, Africa, the Caribbean and uh, places like that. It, I think we had one lecture <laughs> once in second year. So if we're actively erasing black people and their contributions, what we're saying is that automatically there's this good architecture and bad architecture and a lot of the time what's good and what's worth noting and what's worth copying and what's worth looking at is done by middle-class white men and it always goes boils down to for me the diversity that's within the profession if you don't have people who look like me designing spaces and have experienced the things I've experienced designing spaces then you're never going to get spaces that speak to everyone we're continuing to perpetuate this uh, racism within the built environment it does come down to what we're 
teaching and what we're saying is worth teaching even going back to things like learning about you know the ruins of the Colosseum, which is always you know amazing and being told to go and see them but I'm from Zimbabwe uh, and the ruins of Great Zimbabwe, I actually wrote one of my third year essays on them. And I wasn't able to really find anyone to give me guidance because they didn't really know anything about them when they're equally as impressive in terms of what they are, what they mean historically. But it's this constant erasure of contributions by a certain group of people that continues to perpetuate the idea of kind of importance for one group and not for others. And I think that then bleeds into every single aspect of what we design, how we design, and it continues to push a narrative that is um, very skewed. Yeah, there's some very powerful links between what you're both saying about historically and even currently the erasure of certain identities, certain geographies, certain histories, and then how to move forward. We need to create more presence, more visibility, more representation. Do you have examples of projects or people that are actually making a positive difference in the built environment, creating more visibility, presence for Black people, a way that you find inspirational or transformative? Okay, 2020, I was supposed to pick up a module to teach um, management theory and practice, and it involves um, leadership in built environment and all that. So when I picked up this this role, I decided to have a check on what other previous module leaders had worked on, you know, just to have an idea. And I was, I mean, pleasantly surprised because now you are talking about positive aspects that, um, okay, the, 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 the module leader wasn't black. Then I went through the slides, then I saw the extent of the inclusion of different racial groups in his lecture notes. I didn't tell him, actually I'm saying this here, but I was like, wow, this is this is good, you know, trying to explain this using that slide. Of course, in my own preparation for my lectures, I would have been very inclusive, but even for the fact that a non-Black person did that, that was very impressive to me. So meaning that there was that in, intention, I mean, to really make his lecture all-encompassing, to be inclusive, because the, the, the audience is actually global. Kutsai, are there any examples that you would point to? I think for myself, sadly, I haven't seen any examples within the current landscape when it comes to the schools of architecture and the practices that exist in the UK. People are trying and they are things that, be, that are being done, amazing things that are being done. I actually did, when I did my dissertation, I did a, uh, I did a study of what was being done by schools across the UK um, to, to combat racism uh, and UCL actually came out on top. And there are other schools like Oxford Brooks who have, I believe, a, black, a, a Celebrating Black Excellence programme for students. So there are things being done, but I think in terms of something that is, in my opinion, consistent and really kind of challenging within the current landscape, I don't think that anyone has kind of really done the job yet. Where I do start to see examples that are impressive are things that I like to call architecture adjacent. So I've been learning about a lot of a lot of organizations recently, one of which I've actually started working for, uh, Beyond the Box Consultants, and also Create London, who actually work 
kind of on the periphery of architecture to bring in people who may not have had the opportunity or the just the understanding of what architecture is. And they, those to me, organisations like that that are starting to come through and are starting to work kind of, it's almost like they have to work outside of actual architecture to actually then penetrate and make a difference within architecture because architecture, the way it's set up um, and this systemic nature that we talk about, it's so difficult, I think, to actually make a difference within the profession that you kind of sometimes have to take a step out of it and work being done by organisations like this. For example, one of the projects that I'm working on at the moment is called the People's Pavilion. And what it actually does is it encourages young people in seven boroughs of East London to come and design a pavilion that eventually they'll see the winning one being constructed in full and they'll program events to happen in this pavilion. So, and I think that's where you're starting to make a difference, where you start to tackle it before people are going into university. Because a lot of the time, once they're in university, people like myself, once we're in university, it's almost too late to start to tackle it because you're already thrown into an environment that you're uncomfortable in and you're kind of really having to fight constantly to get to the end result. Um, So I think organisations like the ones that I've mentioned are the ones that are kind of working on the periphery of architecture, not necessarily inside of it, but on the periphery to begin to equip people and open doors for people that might not necessarily get the kind of leg up that other people going into the profession get. Right now, we are celebrating Black History Month, and I'm wondering in your experience, both uh, in the in the fields that you work in, but also the the, the programs that you've taught in, um, to what extent is Black History Month embedded in the curriculum currently? I feel that is not enough. It's not enough because you know it should be be embedded into, I mean, all year round curriculum framework. I'll still get to the built environment, but I just want to say that it is something that it is something that people, children at different educational categories, should be aware of. It's part of our history. The earlier they get to that, the better. Even before getting to the university, to embed it into national framework, national curriculum framework, students should learn about it right from. Um, reception, uh, if it's possible, and I know it's possible, nursery, A levels, and all that. It makes the work easier by the time to get they get to the uni. So in terms of recruitment, because representation matters. When you see, look at somebody that looks like you, teaching you, doing fantastic, having several publications, doing a fantastic job, it inspires both. I mean, new um, young generations and even the ones to come. And apart from that. What other other things we can do in the built environment is to deliberately make the works of black people visible, the, the black scholars. We have the reading list, the books to be read. There are amazing books out there, produced, published by black people. That is meaning that the first thing is to make, to, to be conscious, I'm going to do this, I'm going to include this in my reading list. And also, cases, different cases, different um, projects handled by black scholars in the built environment can be cases to be studied. So these are some of the things um, we can do, apart from recruitment, deliberate um, effort of 
putting the work of um, black people visible in reading lists, making their cases um, studied and, 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 and many more. And I think that the curriculum in architecture has such a long way to go. Being at the Liverpool School of Architecture, like I said, I can only ever remember learning about West African architecture once in second year. And the lecture itself was actually taught by a white man. So we were learning about West African architecture, but through the the lens of a white man. And I think it goes back to what Omer was saying about representation and recruitment, because I very much struggled in my undergrad because there were no black tutors and in my three years of undergrad I had no black people coming in to critique my work or the none of the crits looked like me so that really I led me to start to question my place in the profession and I actually took a year out to try and figure out whether or not I actually belonged here because I really struggled with the idea of not seeing anyone who looked like me and then the the issue with that I began to have with things like reading lists was that everyone seemed to just be copying and pasting the same three books uh, on race. Um, Every time I asked anyone about, you know, what was good to read about race, I would just be recommended, oh, the UCL race in space. And then if I wanted anything other than that, no one kind of had anything that they could suggest to me outside of that. So it it felt like they, there was kind of this, effort being made to decolonize and to, but it was a very surface level where it was like we'll put two books on the reading list and we'll maybe mention David one of David Ajay's projects in 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 a lecture or a tutorial and that's it it was like pulling teeth trying to get people to recognize contributions by black architects to recognize books or projects by black architects for me actually I will always say that the thing that got me through my master's was the new head of school who was appointed professor Ola Uduku was appointed in 2020 um, when I was starting my master's and for me seeing her every day really made me believe that I could get to the end of the course and she was the only black person in staff but she was someone who looked like me had experience like me I could talk to her about things that I was interested in and I finally felt like I had a place and I I finally felt like my interests in architecture were valid and I had someone that I could kind of look up to who could say to me if I did it then so can you and I think it's within the curriculum it's never going to change until we get like Omar was saying an influx of diverse staff who can then push that material in an authentic way and really be role models to people who need that so desperately. How do we do that? So what are the impediments? You know, um, this conversation has been going on for many years. Why, why are we not making faster, deeper, more meaningful progress? I was, I was um, doing my PhD. Then I came across an advert. I was not even planning to apply because it was in Australia. I wasn't planning to move to Australia, but I was very surprised that things like this happen. Melbourne University in Australia, School of Design and Construction. I just saw the advert and and the only thing, okay, you must be, uh, you must have PhD, all the criteria listed. And the last one, you must be a woman. I wrote the dean. So she had a mission that her faculty must be 50 percent men and women equality so what why am i saying this i'm just using this as an illustration how the recruitment exercise can be done deliberately by having a quota of this particular set of people 
we have the, we have their representation as students we have the, so why don't you have also them as mentors as lecturers so that the, it will be very global in that sense i am personally a big fan of the bold approach of uh, the positive discrimination but i think that there are several things that I think need to be tackled. First, I think it's acknowledging that a lot of the school environments that we have created are not ones that Black professionals want to work in. So I would look at that if I was applying to go somewhere and I was going to be, you know, moving to a school, I would say, well, if there are no Black staff, then potentially every issue that has to do with race is going to be pointed in my direction, whether I'm qualified or want to take that on or not. So why would I want to go and be in that environment um, and potentially have things that I don't want to be involved with put on me because of the colour of my skin? So I think it's important for schools to begin to acknowledge and to just take stock and look around and say, is this an environment that welcomes diverse individuals and, and, you know, more to the point, black people? Are we working in an environment that and have we created an environment that black professionals will want to come and work in? And I think for a lot of the schools, the answer to that, unfortunately, is no. Because again, going back to my dissertation, uh, another thing that I looked at was the makeup of staff in the 55 Rebra accredited schools. And the number of schools that had no black staff was alarming. And so I can see how black people would be turned off of those environments because you never want to go somewhere willingly where you are the only one. So this podcast is called Building Better. And before we wrap up, I really want to ask both of you to look towards the future, think 10, 15, even 50 years ahead. And what are your thoughts on what we need to do in order to build better in our world? So how to build better society has to start from to say the truth and to use our voice, to keep talking about, about it, to keep talking about colonialism, to keep talking about how it's affecting um, built environment, how built environment is used to perpetuate it. When you go to a country, a former colony, and this is what you see, and, and how we can move beyond that. And of course, in our, we have talked about that in our um, different jobs, different vocation, you know, to ensure that um, Black people's works, achievements are visible, deliberately, intentionally. So we use our voice. We ensure that we have deliberate strategy to make our workplace inclusive. And for, it is from inclusion that we'll have innovation that will help to, to address various problems and build sustainable society. Thank you. Thank you, Omo. And uh, Kutsai, what are your thoughts? Uh, looking towards the future, how can we build better? I think that in order to build better, the onus needs to be shifted for who's responsible for solving a lot of the problems. Because I'm not bothered by conversations. I will talk and I will educate, but what I don't have kind of the energy or time for anymore is conversations that go nowhere and I think that's what a lot of practices and institutions are doing is that they keep on encouraging conversations that then go nowhere when most institutions and most practices have more than enough resource to begin to facilitate positive action 
all they need to do is now take the things that you learn in the conversations and put some put some resource behind it and really make something happen and I think we've gotten into the trap where everyone is just kind of really promoting great conversations and that that kind of is where it ends um and I think in order for us to build better we need to move beyond the conversation and more people need to begin to facilitate positive action to happen so yeah I think it's we've had the conversations and yes continue to have the conversations but now what we really need to start seeing if we're going to build better is action across the board Kutsa, I think that is the perfect note on which to wrap up our conversation, a powerful, a compelling call to action. I want to thank both of my guests for today's conversation. If you want to learn more about either of their work, there are links in our show notes, including to an online seminar that Kutsai is delivering for the Liverpool Architecture Festival on Wednesday, the 26th of October at 6.30 p.m. And her talk celebrates and spotlights the role of Black architects and discusses their impact and legacies. You can also find a link to Omalea's book, Breaking Stiff Boundaries, which is about a woman from the global South and the challenges she faced in pursuing a doctoral degree at an elite global research university. You have been listening to Building Better, the Bartlett podcast. This podcast was presented by myself, Christoph Lindner, and brought to you by the Bartlett, UCL's Faculty of the Built Environment. It was edited by Karis Bradley and featured music from Blue Dot Sessions. I was joined today by Omalei Ojuri and Kutsai Machai. If you would like to hear more of these podcasts, Subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk slash Bartlett slash Building Better. And of course, you can follow us at the Bartlett UCL. See you next time.